gracious of God to give us such a practical book on wisdom, just to, to fan the flames of wisdom in our hearts and minds. I mean, we're, we're not left to fend for ourselves and, and just try to figure this out on our own. But we have the Holy Spirit that takes us under his wing and teaches us how to live so we don't have to learn everything the hard way. And you know how reassuring it is when someone takes you under their wing, right? Like when somebody uh, takes you under their wing to teach you to do something that, that you know you have someone to lean on and, and you're, you're not alone. And, and it's so, so awesome when you can do that for someone else, to give them counsel, to, get, to warn them about the pitfalls that lie ahead of them to kind of help steer them in the right direction. That's why we have the book of Proverbs. This is, this is the Holy Spirit giving us some of the most practical, you know, uh, warnings and practical teachings on how to live life rightly. And it's done in the context of a son or a father sitting down his son and, and wanting to transfer his wisdom to him. And we remember this, is, this knowledge and this insight, this is what protects his son. This knowledge and insight that God has for us in Proverbs is to protect us. So it's not, it's not just about shielding your kids from the world forever. It's about teaching them how to use a shield. That's what wisdom and insight does. It protects us from harm in that we are equipped with the insight to navigate through life in such a way that we can do it better. And we can avoid so, so much turmoil by by taking God at his word and applying this teaching to, his life, to, our, to our lives. And so this is, this chapter 6 is, is so practical that when you, when you open it up and look at the title of chapter 6, like in my, in my Bible, it's called Practical Warnings. <laughs> That's how practical it is. And so we're going to take four paragraphs, actually, in chapter 6 today. So we're not going to take the entire chapter because I think the latter part of chapter 6 goes with chapter 7, which we'll get into next time. But these first four chapters can be broken up into three practical points of teaching. So verses 1 through 5, he's saying to his son, listen, don't be irresponsible with your finances. It's pretty practical. The second thing we're going to study in verses 6 through 11, don't be lazy, and I'll tell you why. And then the third point of practical teaching is verses 12 through 19 that we're going to, that we're going to take, and it's, it's this. Don't be that guy. We're going to talk about who that guy is when we get into the description. But let's just jump right in and get to verses 1 through 5 in which he is teaching his son, don't be irresponsible with your finances. He says this, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and have, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. And so when you get into this, these first five verses and look into how those phrases would have been used in, in Hebrew culture, what he's saying here is don't put your financial security up uh, when it comes to your neighbor's work ethic. Don't, don't pledge your money for your strangers. The, here, here's the best way to think about this. In our culture, in our time, we think of co-signing for a loan, putting your, your financial security up as collateral for someone else's uh, future debt. He's saying, uh, you, you don't want to do that. Be careful with your finances. Don't be irresponsible. 
And so that practice of like co-signing for a loan, that, that, would have, that would have gone all the way back into this time. And so he's saying, and when you think about it, like, you know, put, putting your finances up for your kids is one thing. All right, but this is for a neighbor or a stranger. So co-signing for your, for your son or daughter's, you know, used car, not a big deal. That's not what we're talking about here. He's also, he's also not saying don't be generous. He's not saying be stingy. He's saying be responsible. Like if the bank won't lend uh, your neighbor or, or a stranger money, uh, don't you put yourself up as collateral so that that can happen. Uh, be careful. So, you know, it's interesting when I was thinking about this teaching, I was thinking about how many times I've seen things like this go wrong in the world, right? Even within the church. I mean, so many times I've seen some very well-meaning people, people with great intentions. Man, I'm just going to help this guy out. I'm going to co-sign for this or I'm going to, you know, uh, leverage some things that I have so that they can get started or, or do this or take this risk. And then everything just goes terribly wrong and then everybody ends up hating one another. You've probably, I know uh, you've probably witnessed situations like this play out. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've seen even within the church, like friends co-sign for friends when it comes to business loans or, or, or again, some risks that they're, they're taking to make more money in the future. And then it tanks. The idea doesn't pan out. And then everybody hates each other. I even saw once, I, I know of a church who, who hired a pastor and the pastor said, well, hey, uh, I don't like banks. Uh, and they, they're like, okay. And he said, oh, but I really like this house. And I would like for you guys to put down the down payment for this house, and then I'll pay you back. And they, that, that church actually put down over $100,000 as a down payment for that house. Now, I was young at this point in time, and even I was like, well, that's a bad idea. <laughs> You better believe that's a bad idea. And you know how the story goes. It all, it all went terribly, terribly wrong. There was a reason he didn't like banks, and there was a reason that's a bad idea. And now they all hate each other. One of the more unique scenarios, that, that scenario is pretty unique, but there's another unique scenario I witnessed once. <laughs> you can't make this up. This is so random. This is a pastor who decided to getting into uh, buying and selling and trading collectible coins. And so he was so sure that he could buy, sell, and trade coins and make a profit that he began to hit up the people in his church to give him money to get more coins because he was going to flip those coins and make everybody a ton of money. Well, you know how that story went, right? The, evidently, there weren't enough nerds collecting coins to keep the market hot. <laughs> and then pretty soon, everybody's money's gone and everybody hates each other. I mean... The, the teaching here is just really practical. Don't, don't be irresponsible when it comes to your money. You don't want to put yourself in a situation in which you're a neighbor or a stranger has you ensnared by their, you know, their ability to, to do good and their ability to manage this future debt. So it's one thing if something goes wrong and, and they can't pay their bills and you want to help them out. Scripture would obviously encourage you to do that. Help, help your brother, help your neighbor, help, your strange, help the stranger if they can't pay their bills. Obviously, we want to do that as believers, but that's not what this is saying. You know, it's another thing if, if say, someone just, you know, is trying to make it in life and things go wrong and they have a bunch of hospital debt. I literally just witnessed 
some believers paying off some hospital debt for someone who was struggling to, to pay that off and because they, they had some health concerns in the previous couple of years that had begun to, to add up. And so obviously this isn't saying don't do things like that. Obviously we want to be generous. We want to take care of one another and neighbors and strangers. But don't put yourself up, yourself up as collateral for a future debt. All right? And, and then he stresses the urgency then. Like if you find yourself even in one of those situations, get out of it. Just don't, don't, don't even think about it. Get out of there. And so you see how, just how practical chapter 6 is. And it seems like he just goes from one subject to the next. As he says, don't be irresponsible with your finances. He then goes on to, hey, don't be lazy. So let's take verses 6 through 11. He says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in, the, in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. He didn't want, to, he didn't want his boys to grow up lazy. I, I hear that, man. You don't want your kids to grow up lazy. And the, and the way that he, he tells them, hey, if you want to avoid laziness, learn from nature. Take a look at the ants. Isn't it cool how God created everything in such a way that we can learn from and be inspired by nature? Oh, we want to fly. How do the birds fly? Let's copy that when we learn how to fly. Well, if you want good work ethic, take a look at the ant, right? The ants are pretty impressive. You know, ants, when, if you've ever just observed ants, maybe you've had an ant farm or whatever or uh, but, I mean, everybody has seen ants whenever they find a piece of food and how they all work together and they're so consistent, just slow, steady, consistent. And it's amazing what they can accomplish. Like, all of a sudden, you go back to where the ants were and, and what they, how they've been able to dismantle maybe a piece of scrap food or an animal or something like that. It's pretty impressive. I actually just, I, I had an ant encounter just last week. I I had, my <laughs> I had my septic tank emptied, which is a really crappy job, but I ha had, to, had to get it done. <clears throat> Man, I'm tired, but I'm not that tired. I, dad, I'll slip in a dad joke. So I, I, got, I, I had to get my septic tank uh, emptied. It was just time, and, and, the, and the guy got there to, to check on the aerator. You know, you got that concrete lid. You got to lift that up, check on the aerator see if it's working properly. And I wanted to watch because I want to be able to run maintenance on this septic tank, as, as if I could fix anything. But I, I wanted to watch and learn anyway. And so he's like, you never know what's underneath these lids. Man, it can be anything. Usually it's snakes, hornet's nests, you know, yellow jackets or whatever. And so I'm just like, I, I kind of got one hand on my phone in case I want to make a YouTube video or something. <laughs> Let's watch this guy go in there. And he opens it up and it's just ants. Oh, man. There were so many ants, it was impressive. They had created this ant kingdom in there under, you know, all around our aerator. It was like part of me wanted to barf and the other part of me wanted to applaud. Uh, it, was, it was impressive. I mean, just, you know, the, the eggs ugh, and, and the, just all the tunnels and, the, and how they arranged the dirt and got everything around there. But man, you know, these ants, like we, we totally messed up their world. <laughs> It, it was so impressive, but like, and it, when he moved that lid, they, they all got to work. They just instinctively got to work. Something needs done here. 
We are in danger. And so they all start grabbing eggs and go doing their thing, you know, protecting their young. And everybody had a job and everybody's moving, everybody's doing something. They're ready to get to work. You don't have to tell the ants to get to work. There's no chief officer, and despite all the cartoons that we've seen, there's no chief officer, there's no ruler that has to say, okay, at once everyone get the egg. None of that's going on. They just know, they instinctively know to get to work. They get stuff done. When they see the need, they meet the need. They are the opposite of a slug. So he's saying to his sons, like, you, you, don't, don't be a slug. Don't be lazy. Take a look at the ant. Look at what they can accomplish collectively. Look at what they can accomplish even individually. Nobody tells them to get to work. They just get to work. They get it done. They take care of themselves, and they take care of the people around them, the ants around them. Let's not personify the ants too much. I'm, now I'm doing what Disney's doing. I'm sorry. They take care of the ants around them. But take a lesson. Take, take a page out of the book from ants, Solomon says. Be able to take care of yourself. Be able to provide for yourself. And be able to provide for yourself in such a way that you can provide for others around you also. That's how you want to live your life. That's going to bring you the most fulfilling life possible. That's going to bring you the most satisfaction is when you can care for yourself and those who are around you. Now, be, that, that word sluggard, that's actually a really common word in the book of Proverbs. You can find this in other places in Scripture too. But the sluggard, he, he'll, he'll continually like circle back to the, to the sluggard, just to harp on the sluggard some more. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. This is a really common theme. And if you turn to Proverbs 26, verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 are some of my favorite Proverbs with regard to being lazy and how he, he complains about the sluggard there. And in, in, verse, in verse 13, he said, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. In other words, the, the lazy person, they'll come up with any excuse whatsoever just to stay in bed. To not go out there, to not get to work, to not get the job done. They'll make up any excuse they can possibly think of, no matter how unrealistic it is. There's a lion out there. Better stay in here and do nothing. Better be safe. Verse 14 says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard in his bed. You think of a, a door, you know, it moves, but it never goes anywhere. Right? Just flips and flops and flips and flops and doesn't actually go anywhere. That's like a slugger, a lazy person. They, they flip and flop and maybe they'll even try to look busy, but they never actually get anything done. Verse 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. There's nothing in it. He's so lazy, he's starving to death. He can't even get the Cheeto back to his mouth. He's that lazy. <laughs> Of course, if you think, if you're, not, if you're not working, if you're not providing for yourself and for others, then you're not going to have. You will go without. You will be so lazy that you will starve to death. That's the image that he's trying to, to relay to his kids. Don't be that lazy that you, you, you don't even have the energy because you don't have the nutrients because you don't have the work ethic to get stuff done. And then Verse 16 is my all-time favorite verse when it comes to bashing the slugs. It says, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. I, I love that. Because it's oftentimes that lazy people are the know-it-alls. You can't convince them. They are so hard-headed. 
It doesn't matter if seven people have a more sensible, logical, right answer. They can talk until they're blue in the face. The sluggard is too lazy to even consider the possibility that he could be wrong. Because that would take work. That would take critical thinking. And he doesn't want to have to do that. He's just too lazy. He knows it all, and so he doesn't listen to them. He just does his own thing, goes his own way. Man, I can't stand people like that. <laughs> it's lazy. It's lazy. So here's a good healthy exercise that I think is good for all of us to maybe walk through today. When you think through some of these verses about slugs, maybe you should think like, maybe you're like, hey, you know what? I got a job. I'm working. I'm paying the bills. I'm okay. I'm taking, you know, I, I'm, I'm generous. I give to people around me. Okay, well, maybe think through these passages uh, in, with regard to the spiritual realm of life. Maybe physically you, you're on point. You're not a slug. Uh, maybe even uh, emotionally there are many arguments you could make that you're, you're on point. You're getting it done. You're healthy. But maybe when it comes to the spiritual aspect of life, you're not so ant-like. You know, are, are you being a slug when it comes to your spiritual life? Are, 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 you, are you making excuses? Are you saying, hey, there's a lion in the road, so I'm not going to, you know, go to church or, or serve or participate in some way? Or are you, the, are you the type of person that you're spiritual lazy in the sense that, you know, you're like a door that turns on its hinges in bed, like you, you, you just never really um, go anywhere spiritually. You're spiritually stagnant because you don't put in the time necessary to, to obtain that nutrients that you need, the bread of life. You know, you think, think of that, that, that uh, verse 15 there where it talks about you're so lazy you're starving to death. Well, I really think that's a symptom of so many believers. We go through seasons where we're, we're just not feeding on the gospel. We're not, we're not pursuing God's word. We're not pursuing his truth. And we're starving for those things. And there, or, or verse 16, you know, are you being spiritually lazy in the sense that you are not critically thinking about what you believe? You're not preparing to have an answer for what you believe. You're not letting your, reasonable, your reasonableness be known, as Paul would say in Romans. And, and, and so you're just being lazy and you're, just, you're content to just settle with what you think is right. It may be a mixture of what culture says and what the Bible says and, or, or, or whatever, but you're, you're fine with that. You don't want to think critically or just lazy. Are, are, are you spiritually lazy? I think those are healthy questions to ask ourselves. And, and then we think about that description there that we read in, in 9 through 10. Like when, when Solomon's encouraging his son not to be lazy, it's like he's doing so by having a conversation with someone and harping on someone who is being lazy. And he's saying, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. I loved that last little description there because when we feel spiritually bankrupt at times, it, it can feel like it happens all of a sudden, but it never does. So often it's the case that we have been spiritually lazy for a season of time and, and just, a, just a little compromise here, a little compromise there and pretty soon we're not doing anything like what we should be in the routine of our lives to feed on the gospel or, or to, to grow spiritually and then it's like all of a sudden this lifestyle has crept up on us and, and it's just like a robber has pounced on us and taken our faith. I, I really feel like that's such a good description because that's how it feels for a lot of people. 
And then how do we respond to those things? When people feel spiritually bankrupt, when they feel so disconnected with regard to their faith, they oftentimes get frantic. Oh, no, I got, I, I got to do something. I got to figure something. I, I got to do something drastic. I got to, you know, maybe I, maybe I got to, you know, I got to be a, participate in this really big unrealistic way or make this big unrealistic plan to get back on track or I got to make this drastic change that actually is kind of unnecessary, but I got to prove to myself this is real. And so we get so, we get so frantic sometimes and overcorrect that we just swerve right off the other side of the road, I think. And so never take a page out of the book of the ant. When, you're, when, you're, when you've gone through a, a season of spiritual laziness, don't overcorrect into the other ditch. Think about how the ant just gets up and gets to work. Slow, steady, consistent. I, I, I think these, the stereotypical Christian disciplines that are so fruitful and so life-giving they are, they are the most over, uh, underrated, excuse me, underrated aspects of the Christian life. Just consistency. You know, if you feel like you're off track, don't overcorrect with this big plan. Just go back to what you know is true. Prayer time. It doesn't have to be, you know, so, sometimes people, they, they jump on the prayer train and they're like, man, I'm going to make a prayer closet and I'm going to have prayer notes and I'm going to have a prayer t-shirt and I'm going to have a prayer day and this is going to be, and then we do that for like three times and we don't have time to do that because it's not, it's, it's unrealistic. It begins to be unrealistic for most of us. Well, find a plan that is realistic. Find a way to incorporate prayer into your life however you got to do that. One of the most practical things I did when I was young uh, literally, I remember getting my driver's license and trying to pray more because I felt guilty about how much I didn't pray. And I remember I, I had this deal with myself. I wouldn't turn on the radio until I prayed anytime I was going somewhere. And so to this day, that has stuck. I don't listen to the radio. I don't listen to things driving down the road. If I am alone and I get in the car, I'll find myself reaching for the radio. And that, I, I still, to that, that has stuck with me since I was 16 years old. Just a way to trick myself to create space for prayer. Well, how, what do you got to do to think about just a slow, steady, realistic approach to reading Scripture? You know, we put all of these one-year Bible reading plans in front of us. Man, I, w I literally was just visiting my, my aunt and uncle at our reunion, and my aunt and uncle had their one-year Bible in their hotel room, and I, my dad has his one-year Bible in his hotel room. They're all reading. They've read through the Bible every year, like my whole life. They've read the Bible more times than I could ever dream of reading through the Bible front to back. They just constant, like that works for them. It doesn't work for me like that. I can't read through the Bible in a year. If you put a gun to my head, I can't get it done in a year. It's just not how my brain works. And I'm pretty sure that's okay. I like to meditate on small chunks of scripture. I like to think through verses for long periods of time. That's why I'm so slow getting through books of the Bible. I preach like how I think. It's just how I am, and so we'll get into a book of the Bible and be there for a year because that's how my brain works. And so if that's not how your brain works, you're probably going to hate it here. <laughs> It'll drive you crazy. But I, I really think a realistic approach to how I can, I can read Scripture is, is going to last longer than just beating myself to death, to death trying to do some unrealistic approach. I envy people who can read through the Bible in a year or multiple versions of the Bible in a single year, or, or multiple books every week or month or whatever. It's, it's amazing. 
but take a realistic approach, that slow, steady, consistent approach of the ant, whatever that is for you, figure it out and implement it into your life. So he says to his son, don't be financially irresponsible. Don't be lazy. Those two ways of life will make you miserable. And the third lesson he has for them here is this, don't be that guy. Now, spoiler alert, that guy is someone who, who sows discord amongst people. That, that guy is the one who is a jerk in such a way in which he, he, he destroys unity wherever it is. Listen to this description in, in verses 12 through 15. He says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. He's someone who, who, who destroys unity. Don't be that guy. Don't be the guy who's always destroying unity. And, here, and, and, and did you see how, how he did it, the different ways in which he does it? Uh, it, it feels like Unity just feels like something we can't get a hold of anymore, right? We always talk about how our culture is so polarized right now. I mean, this is like the only thing people are unified on lately is just how we're not unified. We're unified in that. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to our country, sometimes when it comes to our community, and even within the local church, right, it's just hard to find unity. And so being someone who creates unity is being someone special. But that's a wise way to live. Even though it feels like such an uphill battle, if you're the one that's fighting for unity, it feels like for every person that's fighting for unity, there's a, a thousand fighting against it. So he's saying, he's, he's saying these people, they, they do this through crooked speech, right? Wink, he winks with his eyes, he signals with his feet, he points with his fingers. Now, I guess we could say this, like, like sometimes speaking truth divides. That's true. That is also true. Remember, Proverbs has... It has wisdom for the gray areas of life, right? But he's talking about sowing disunity through lies. That's what he's talking about. Crooked speech. You know, when I read that description, I kind of got this, like, the way he's pointing with his fingers and winking with his eyes. I got, like, this used car salesman vibe. That's not what he's going for, but that's, what, that's the image that pops in my head when I read that description. But he, he's someone who is purposefully deceptive. Someone who orchestrates evil. He's much more sinister than the used car salesman. I'm sorry if there's any used car salesman, or salesman here. My apologies. He's much more sinister than that. He has a perverted heart, you know, speaking these half-truths and manipulating others to follow along, like, like, follow my feet, come this way. He's scheming for personal gain. And he warns, if you walk down that road, if you become this person who uses lies or, or half-truths and, and you're always scheming and winking and signaling and manipulating others, Calamity will come upon you. Make no mistake, sooner or later, judgment will come, and it will not be good for you. So please, son, don't walk down that path. So we remember, what is wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. You know, so, so when you exhibit these behaviors in life, like he's saying, don't, don't walk down this road because it causes disunity, this, this it destroys peace. That is a good motivating factor to not walk down that road. But someone who is wise has a, great, a greater motivating factor than that. 
right? Someone who is wise is someone who fears the Lord, and so they care about the holiness of God. So they don't want to do that. They don't want to exhibit that behavior in their life because God hates that behavior. That's the ultimate motivating factor. Listen to, to 16 through 19. He's going he's gonna to elaborate on the same things he just talked about with this wicked man. 16 through 19 says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a hand, uh, in hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. You see that everything he described about the worthless, wicked man? He elaborates on all of these attributes of the wicked man. God, God hates that stuff. That's why you ultimately don't want to walk down this path. You don't want, you know, the, the, the description of the wicked man is he had winking eyes. Here we have haughty eyes or arrogance. Maybe it's the type of person who would look at a list like this and think, I know people like that. There's one there and there's one over there. We don't think to look at ourselves, right? That would be someone with haughty eyes. Maybe, that, maybe that's another good exercise today as we think about the wicked man. Is there any of that displayed in our hearts? Are there any of these things that feel all too familiar? Do you use crooked speech or a lying tongue, right? A half-truth is still a whole lie, right? The wicked man uses his fingers to point. Maybe he uses his fingers to point blame or to, or, to organize destruction, and then the description that God hates is hands that shed innocent blood. It's murder, ultimately. Signaling with his feet, well, in this description, he's, he has feet that run directly to evil, quickly to evil. All of this behavior has a huge, huge impact on peace in a negative way. He's saying, don't be that guy. Be the guy who preserves peace in truth. Preserve the peace in truth. Now, when, so when we, when we look at the description of the wicked man, again, don't, don't exhibit his haughty eyes and look around. Think about the part of that that may match anything that you do. Because here's the truth. Every one of us in here was born under the curse of sin. There's a part of us that is that worthless, wicked man. But we have been redeemed. Because of Christ, we are no longer seen as wicked by God. Because of Christ, we have worth. We are not worthless. We have been redeemed. So we don't want to exhibit this behavior because there's also a part of us that was made in the image of God. Everyone has those two factors in their life. Everyone is made in the image of God and so there's going to be parts of, our, uh, of who we are that may resemble the creator. And so we know that God has graciously sent his son to redeem us in that wickedness. But in addition to saving our souls and providing the righteousness that we don't have, providing the atonement that we don't have, in addition to doing all of that, he makes us better from one degree to the next. As we read the Gospels, we find that he doesn't leave us in our, in our mess. He counsels us. He takes us under his wing to make us better one step at a time. Hey, think about this differently. Change your mind about, about this over here. Consider this, consider renewing the way that you think about this particular sin or this pattern of behavior. Think about it differently. I'm telling you this because I want to steer you in the right direction. I want to help you, I want to help you live life well and, and, and feel fulfillment and satisfaction in your life. This is the best way to do it. 
So, I mean, the book of Proverbs is just pure, it's just pure grace. We get grace on top of grace and more grace so that we can look less like the wicked man that we fight to, to put off, that old self, and we, we can look more like Christ and put on our new self uh, after our creator. So let's, let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you for the practical teachings of the book of Proverbs. Lord, we thank you so much that you don't leave us in our wickedness. If we're all being honest with ourselves, Lord, as we look through these practical teachings, so many of us in here have learned the hard way when it comes to being irresponsible with our finances. Or so many of us have been lazy. So many of us go through seasons of spiritual laziness. I know so many people are feeling that coming out of the pandemic especially, in which we were disconnected, it felt like, in, as a community for a season of time, and we got lazy in that season. And Lord, the wicked man that is in all of us, Lord, we, we, we can relate, embarrassingly enough, we can relate to the haughty eyes. We can relate to the shifting feet and the pointing fingers. But we're so grateful that you would take us under your wing. We don't deserve that. That you would take us under your wing and, and teach us how to be holy. To give us the standards of your holiness, Lord, that we can... We can recognize this sinfulness when it happens in our lives and in our minds and that we can put it to death by your grace. And it's in your name.